For a moment there, I thought I might have forgotten my sermon. Would have been. That's okay. Spirit leads. Uh, so, before we begin, uh, I want to again welcome you all here. I know it's a, a warm day, but hopefully you're enjoying your time inside. I just want to open up with a bit of prayer. God, thank you uh, for bringing us to this space. We pray that you enter this time, Lord, and that it's your word and your movement that people hear now, Lord, that you use whatever words might be on that paper as a conduit for what you're planning on moving people for. In your loving name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I actually want to start with an activity. Uh, And what I want you all to do is you have a pen. Some of you take notes and things. If not, there's probably something on your chair that you can use. Uh, I want you to basically make almost a tic-tac-toe pattern on something. Whatever it may be. And you can do this in your mind if you're someone who's less visual. I'm just a very visual person, so I need to write it down. What I want you to do, uh, and I stole this activity, so if you don't like this activity, feel free to make fun of it all you want. You won't hurt my feelings. But apparently I have a very small space I can walk in. So I want you to think about the eight... Uh, either houses or apartments or living spaces physically nearest to the place that you live. I want you to think about those eight spaces. I know in D.C. we have a lot of different living types. So some of you might live in a house, some of you might live in an apartment, some of you might live in a different space. But I want you to think about the eight sort of people or families that live nearest to you. And I want you to write down their names. So the eight people geographically closest to you, and write down your name, their names. I'll give you a little bit of time. Okay, I'm going to give you about 15 more seconds. Okay, how many of you were able to write down all eight? Okay, there's a couple of you, that's good. The eight nearest people. I, I can't, and I knew I was going to do this. I could have prepped for this, and I also seem to be unable to do that. I think I get to about five. I was doing it in my head. Um, Okay, so of those people you did write down, though, I want to keep going. Write something about them. Of those names that you wrote down, write something about them.
Now, as you write something about a fact about that person, the last layer I want you to think about is, can you write something that would be an in-depth piece of information you wouldn't know by just looking at them or observing them? Okay. How many of you are still at all eight? So all eight, good, you too. Well then good, I'll, that's okay, that's a good thing. Um, I am not part of that all eight. So if it keeps going, I'll just pick up the, the hand mic. I have some work to do to think about that. The reason why I started with this, I want us to be in a certain mindset as we dive into this sermon. Now this is a sermon about a story in the Bible that most people are aware of, even if they don't know it's from the Bible. And that's the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, some of you might be familiar with, is a parable that Jesus shares as a response to a question. And that question is, who is my neighbor? I think the Good Samaritan is a very applicable story to this group in particular because it starts out with someone who is labeled an expert in the law trying to test Jesus, trying to figure out boundaries. And many of us here, whether in our professional life or in our personal life, are constantly trying to define boundaries. What do I need to do? What can I get away with not doing? How do I preserve time? If we turn to Luke 10, 25 through 37, we read that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, many of you know that I was a teacher uh, for a while, and so Jesus does exactly what I would do, which is he asks a question back. He says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so the man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So far, this is a pretty good interaction. Right? We have a positive interaction with Jesus where he reaffirms what we often refer to as the great commandments. But then the man continues. Now, are any of you familiar with the phrase, I'd rather keep my mouth shut and be assumed to be ignorant than open it and remove all doubt? <laughs> this is actually probably one of the best examples of the Bible of where that applies. So he says, and it reads, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now there's two important things here. Luke, who's the author of this gospel, found the why. The motivation behind him asking this question to be really important. Because Luke writes, but he wanted to justify himself. So the expert was not asking because he was genuinely seeking an answer, but he was asking it to find out the line. Right? He was asking, well, how many people do I actually have to love as myself? And how do I get out of this as much as possible? That's what he was asking. The expert was changing loving his neighbor into a task, instead of understanding it as a way of life that we're called to. The second, the man, I think, genuinely expected a straightforward answer from Jesus. And part of that is that culturally, there were a lot of lines set up by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How do I keep kosher? How do I do this? And it was a list of do's and don'ts. 
And it seemed like here the man genuinely expected Jesus to give him a list of do's and don'ts so that he could figure out which neighbors he was supposed to love. Instead, Jesus shares a parable of the Good Samaritan. So if we continue to read, Jesus replies by saying, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed him on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw this man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he asked, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now after telling this story, Jesus turns to the man and says, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Now, the Good Samaritan is a parable that Jesus uses to help us better understand the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. There's some cultural understanding that's really important to understand what the Good Samaritan is talking about. First, Jesus was making a point by the characters he uses. The priest and the Levite are both not only Jewish people, right, but they are supposed to be Jewish people in high regard. They're the religious people in the Jewish people. They're supposed to be the models in the community of how we're supposed to interact. And it's these models, these ideal neighbors in some ways, they're the ones who fail to be neighborly. Equally important is understanding that Jesus chose a Samaritan on purpose. Some of you may be aware that the Samaritans and the Jews were not friendly towards each other. They didn't get along at all. They couldn't eat meals together. They didn't interact in the same spaces. They were communities that didn't like each other. And so in the same way, when you hear a Samaritan was the one to act neighborly, that would have had an immense impact on this community that's hearing this parable. So the characters are important. I do think, though, that our societal trend is to latch on to this second definition, to identify neighborliness with the Samaritan, and to ignore the first lesson in this story. In fact, in some ways, the way we talk about this story, right, we label it the Good Samaritan. How many of you learned the story of the two Jews who didn't follow, Jesus, or follow what Jesus told them to do? Right? No, we focus on the positive, but I think we have a lot to learn from the other two. We talk about this idea that we're serving our neighbors, and often when we talk about that, we actually list the organizations we're involved in, the service that we do, the actions we take to help others, and those are really important things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those. Right? Our service to others are really important. Yet we, like the priests and the Levite, often ignore our own neighbors, the people that live right next to us, without thinking about it. When I was in Sunday school, the Good Samaritan lesson was always about celebrating the good works of the Samaritan man. He was the star. But 
I think we have as much to learn from the other two characters as we do from the Samaritan man. If we're to be serious about the greatest commandments in the law, which Jesus said were, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. In fact, we read in Matthew that he goes as far to say that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if we are serious about following Jesus, we have to take these two commandments seriously. Then we have to answer two questions. The first is, what this guy asked? Who's my neighbor? And the second is, what does it mean to love them? So when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, we often conclude that the thing we're supposed to take away from that story is that everyone is my neighbor. And while this is, I think, true, and I do believe we as Christians are called to love every person, I want us as a church to get more focused. You see, the challenge is that when we decide that everyone is my neighbor, we then use that as an excuse to avoid the implications of the greatest commandments. If everyone is my neighbor, we think, then Jesus can't possibly expect me to love everyone as deeply as I should. We need to start at home what we preach and present to the world. So who is my neighbor? Let's start with those eight people. When Jesus, or eight houses, however you define them, because when Jesus talked to this audience, when Jesus shared this parable, everyone in that crowd knew, just like we in this crowd understood, that the priest and the Levite messed up. They did not demonstrate what it meant to be a good neighbor. Similarly, right, whenever we interact, whenever we think about our own neighbors, we fail to show the same thing. We are often, or I will say I am often, much more like the priest and the Levite whenever I interact with my own neighbors than I am like the Samaritan. And that's important for us to understand. I'm not saying we need to stop at these eight people, right? This is important. But until we can get our own neighborhood in order, how can we even begin to think about healing the world? Before we really demonstrate love towards the person that's within 20 feet of us, how can we start the work to heal the world? We as a church, and Jess just said it today, right, we commit ourselves to making a difference in our communities and in the world. But if we want to be a church that's serious about community transformation, then we have to be serious about caring for each other as genuine neighbors. And that has to be our first step. So if we're to accept what I've laid out here, right, that the greatest commandment challenges, to, challenges us to love our actual neighbors as much as it challenges us to love our metaphorical ones, then we need to get serious about what that love looks like. Love requires action. The church, and I think particularly churches in urban areas, need to return to the basics when we define our neighbors. In the early church, Christians were often made fun of for a lot of different things, but unequivocally were recognized for the love that they showed to others. 
In fact, Pastor Kevin often cites many, many early scholars which would talk about this idea that Christians will give you everything but their women. This is radical love, right? Being able to give of yourself. So then, what does it mean for us to actually follow the greatest commandments in loving our neighbors? God invites us to love the way he loves. And that should be a bit unsettling. Because the love that God showed had him send his son to die on a cross. And that is the same love that we are called to. Reverend Peter Gomes put it this way. He said once, to love God is one thing, but what is it to love what God loves? This is not as easy as it sounds, he writes, for God's love at times seems less discriminating than our own. We tend to love those things and persons agreeable to us. The notion that God could love things that we cannot is a hard pill for us to swallow. So the model of love I think we feel more comfortable in is a romantic comedy where we fall in love quickly because it seems to match our perfect image of what it's meant to be. We as quickly break up, run away, or somehow end up in an, in an airport when it's not working. <laughs> and then it resolves only whenever they begin to meet our expectations again. But as always, Jesus' life and ministry turns this transactional love upside down. To understand the love we're called to, we must look at love's best model, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when trying to capture, when people ask me, what does unconditional love really look like? What's this love we're called to look like? I can't help but always return to the Passover meal, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. That's the meal that we celebrate by coming to this table every week. This is the moment where Jesus calls to his disciples and he picks up the bread and says, and he breaks it. And he says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And we know by doing this every week that Jesus is also saying to every single person in this room that I have broken my body for you. Right? And by doing that, he is saying, this is what love looks like. Right? I love you so much that I put my life on the line because I know you're worth it. Now, we often focus on that moment and that beautiful moment where he's sharing this meal with his disciples and what that means. But honestly, I often wonder how Judas felt in that moment. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Judas Iscariot was one of the disciples, but also was to be the person that would betray Jesus. He was at that table. I also wonder how Jesus felt towards Judas, because I understand and I have to recognize he loved Judas just as much as he loved Peter, who he was going to say, found my church. Yet, if I ask us the question, what would you die for? My guess is very few of you would answer, I'd die for the guy who is going to betray me, which results in my brutal and bloody torture, followed by merciless mocking and terminating in a slow and excruciating death by hanging on the cross, right? That's the guy I would die for. That's what Jesus says. Now, Jesus chooses love in that moment and says, Judas, I broke my body for you too, 
right? Jesus says for each of us, I don't care where you're at in your journey, I broke my body for you too. And I love you, even you. Now, before we get too much into that, uh, and too much into the clouds, which I have a tendency to do, uh, if you want to talk about that more later, I'm glad to. I actually want to say two things and bring us back to a more practical thing. One is that there's no way we can fully love without the power of Jesus. That's not something we can do on our own. But two, I want you to hold in your heart this tension, the power of what the love we are called to looks like, and also want to send you off this week with some practical steps to do. Because my fear is, just like when we define our neighborhood too big, we just don't do anything, if we're too afraid of what love really looks like, if we feel like we can't meet that, we just stop in our tracks. And so... I want to give you a couple very practical ways about how we can get real about what it looks like to love our neighbors. And I want to challenge you this week to really try to fill out those eight people, even get their names. So the first is, we need to see our neighbors. Now there's this great word in Zulu, saubona, and saubona translates basically to hello or welcome. But if you translate it literally, it means I see you. So what would it look like if every time we said hello to a neighbor, we were saying, I see you. I see you as a person. I see you in your joys. I see you in your sorrows. I see you. Right? That's a powerful way of saying hello. Now, if we're going to see our neighbors, we at least need to know their names, myself included. Right? I have a task this week to fill in my map, and so do you. But it goes beyond that. It's knowing their name, who they are, interacting with our neighbors, right? That's the first step to loving people. We can't love people if they don't have a person to them. So the second thing, right, if we see our neighbors, then it's praying for them. Now, if we are meant to love our neighbors as ourselves, how often do we petition God on our own behalf? I do a lot. I talk to God a lot about where I'm at. And so if I'm meant to love my neighbors as myself, I am meant to petition God on their behalf as often as I do for my own needs and joys. And so when we think about this idea, the people that we love, right, who do we pray for? I pray for my family. I pray for my church. I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. I pray for the things that I genuinely love and care about. And so if I'm to love my neighbors, I need to pray for them as well. And so if you're new to this, if you're like, listen, I wasn't able to fill out anyone on that list, and right now I got a lot of work to do, those are the two things I want you to walk away with this week. See your neighbor, pray for your neighbor, right? Get the names. Just start at that step. It's the first practical step to thinking about how we live out loving our actual neighbors. Now, if you're like the Chesneys, and you're like, listen, we got this down. We're the model. Good thing one of them's an elder, right? We can look to them then there's more we can do, right? We don't just stop at knowing their name and praying for them. The third practical step we can do is rejoice when our neighbors are joyful and mourn with them when they're sad. Because when we genuinely love someone, we are excited in the moments that they celebrate. We're excited for their accomplishments. And when we know someone, we feel when they feel hurt. And so the next thing, right, when we really are starting to show that we love our neighbors, we're living life with the people around us, 
right? So we know when they're joyful and we're excited. We know when they're mournful. And the last thing I would say, because some of you are probably sitting there saying, all right, but you don't know my neighbors, right? Or you might be saying, like, I don't know. I'm too afraid to mess up. I've, you know, been living there for a while. I'm afraid of what this looks like. I need you all to provide grace. Grace to yourself and grace to your neighbors. And that means, yes, there might be a time that you mess up in some ways, make a mistake, unintentionally offend someone. You got to give yourself grace and you got to seek to learn from that moment. But the other side of that is your neighbors might also make mistakes in interacting with you. And so I challenge you to seek to understand. In fact, I would challenge you to try extra hard for that one neighbor you're least excited to love. Right? Maybe two or three. I don't know your neighborhood. But, but I would almost take the order and say the people I'm most excited to get to know and then flip it upside down on where you start to get to know them. Because we're called to love all of our neighbors. So over the next several weeks, we'll dive deeper into this topic together and we'll wrestle with what it means to follow these greatest commandments and really love our neighbors. Particularly given the tumultuous last couple weeks, it's so very important that we as a church get this right. And, and to understand really what this calling to love our neighbors, both our actual neighbors and our metaphorical ones, looks like. So while yes, and I don't want you to lose this, everyone's your neighbor, and, we should be, and everyone should be shown the power that is the love of God, right? we've got to get back to the basics. Your neighbors, right, these metaphorical neighbors, the neighbor that Samaritan helped, these include your actual neighbors that me, myself included cannot name. Right? That, should, that should convict you. That should be on your heart. And love for them should look as radical and unconditional as the love Jesus has shown you. Let us pray.